0: Start that countdown. Five, four. You better strap yourself in. Three, two. Buckle up, motherfudgebucker. Five. Wait, why'd you go back to five? It's time for the Dan Fogler 4D Experience Podcast. Okay. All right. So this is very special. This is Dan Fogler 40 Experience Podcast. I am here. Ow! I am, I am here Um in LA. I'm like a man on the, the street right now. And um I I'm very excited because I get to interview um someone who I've been trying to interview for a really long time. And um his name is Greg Nicotero. And uh we are here we're we're a and B FX group. Mm-hmm. Uh, your studio is out in L A., uh, which is like, for me right now, it's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory of horror right now. <laughs> uh, very cool to, I see Bella Lugosi over there. Uh, you have all of these amazing statues. Bella and I have the same birthday. Really? Yeah, October twenty.
1: Oh, he might come to life, man.
0: I'm very proud of him. Uh-huh. Very proud of that. Um, and today is Friday the thirteenth.
1: I know it's you not... picked a perfect day. I like, know you couldn't have made it any
0: better. This is it's uh, this is very exciting. Um, so, okay, I have like this whole you know map about how I want to do this interview. So, uh, Kirschman and Berger, you you teamed up with them, mm-hmm. and um, you have gone on to create probably. In my mind, just just speaking from my experience, some of my most visceral um, movie experiences uh, that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Wow. Well, okay. Well. Because a lot of the times you'll see a movie, and I'll it'll it'll I mean it's several it just happens several times as we go through this. There are moments in it where I was like, okay, I I may not even remember who the hell was in that, but I remember that scene where the the blood, yeah. you know, yeah, came out of that guy's. You know, neck a certain way, and it stuck with me forever. Mm-hmm. And so, you're you're the master of that.
1: Well, I had lots of good inspiration. I will I will definitely say.
0: So you mean the best? You were with uh, uh, Giorgio Romero. Mm-hmm. At, at, uh, so what was that like? So let's let's talk about that. You were you were you, how did you
1: fall into that? Well, here here's the funny thing. You know, it's interesting that you. Thank you, by the way, it was a lovely intro. Um, I think we all. We're a very nostalgic society, and I feel like when we're younger and we see these, we see these movies or we see these effects or we see these moments that stick with us. Like for me, it's like, you know, the shark attacking Teddy Grossman in the estuary of Jaws. Okay, uh, that first shot of the shark. When I remember sitting in the theater, like, oh my god, it's so big. Like, ha, like. I was changed forever when I saw that. Me too. Um, and I feel like part of the movie-going experience is that adrenaline rush or when the hairs stand up on your arms or on the back of your neck. It's, it's something that George Romero used to talk about a lot about horror movies. And he would say it's like, a, it's like a roller coaster. You're on the roller coaster and it's thrilling and you're screaming and you're terrified. And when you get off... The elation that you survived. Yeah. And I feel like horror movies gives us that experience without actually killing us or without actually putting us in any real harm's way. So every time you look at somebody getting on a roller coaster versus somebody getting off the roller coaster, there's two completely different experiences. (laughs) Um, And that's what what filmmaking and and that's what, what... scary movies and scary tv shows are about it's about eliciting those emotions and um <clears throat> so for me i grew up in pittsburgh i uh i think you know like my parents are big movie buffs like he, like you know i remember going to see planet of the apes in the theater in like 19 i'm gonna say 68 69 We would go see everything, all the James Bond movies, like everything. My parents were like, come on, we're going to the movies, because they loved movies. So from a very young age, I was exposed to everything. And my mom was always worried because I was the one prone to have nightmares because I had the most vivid imagination of my brothers. So How old were you at this point? um, Well, when when Jaws came out, I was 13. Wow. And my mom and dad went... Opening night, June 20th, 1975, the next day they took us, and they're like, we saw it, we think it's okay, yeah, yeah. but my mom covered my eyes at all the scary parts. Yeah. So my imagination made it a thousand times worse. So for probably the first five or six times that I saw Jaws, <laughs> when those scenes would come up, I would like close my eyes, because I'm like, no, nope, my mom thought that this was probably too scary for me to see. Wow. Um, and then finally, when I did open my eyes and I did see like Chrissy on the beach, like when they find the arm on the beach in the opening, I'm like, oh, I imagined it way worse than Ooh, actually is. we see in the movie. Right. So it's I... A boat accident. I love yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, it was a down angle because I... Re- but that
0: must have been interesting because <laughs> the, the relationship with the mother and the son who comes this close to death and there's a coffee ice cream and mm-hmm. that, you know, that mm-hmm. must have... You know, yeah, like,
1: I, I never thought about that. yeah. But, you know, my mom's funny because she always attributes the fact that I love horror to... She loved reading horror books when she was younger. Yeah. And she read Dracula. She's convinced. She read Dracula when she was pregnant with me. So <laughs> she's like, that's exactly... It's in your DNA. There, it, yeah, there's no reason uh, why he would be that way. So I always just loved... I loved the movies. I was super excited about <clears throat> um, seeing... There was a show on... Pittsburgh uh, on Saturday nights called Chiller Theater, and this was before SNL was on. Okay. They would show two movies, like at eleven thirty, they'd show a movie, and then at one o'clock, they'd show. So it was like a double feature horror movie. So mm. I would stay up late and watch monster movies. Um, hosted by, like, hosted by a guy named Bill Cardill. Okay. Uh, his moniker was Chilly Billy, <laughs> and ironically, he he was he all he was like the weather man, and then he did the Saturday night horror host mm. he's in night of living dead he plays himself he's like the reporter. Oh, he's the reporter so chief what do you say how do we you know he's that guy yeah. so even in my even in my youth i would watch night of living dead and be like that's the same guy that's so in my head there really? was like a weird connection to like reality like right. i could see that guy um in pittsburgh so How did you fall into acting into these things? Well, I'm purely out of luck. You were like, you got a good face. Come over here. Yeah. yeah. uh, In Day of the Dead, it was more like there was a scene written where there's a soldier that's killed and his head comes back to life. (laughs) So we had to start building it. And so Tom Savini, uh, who was my boss, basically went to George and we were like, hey, well, Greg should play that part because we can get started on it. I was just an extra. And then the script went through a whole bunch of changes because the finance people said, we can give you $8 million for an R-rated movie or we'll give you like $3 million for an unrated film. Right. And George is like, well, screw you. I'm not going to let anybody dictate the kind of movie I make. So he wanted to do the unrated version. So since we had started building my head for Day of the Dead, I became a character. And I had like dialogue and like lines and like I was in I the love movie. That and I I told them I'm like you know I don't know how to act I'm not an actor
0: no but it's amazing how suddenly that that's what I love about this stuff it's like join the caravan productions you're on a ship's <laughs> journey man yeah it's like okay. we're out in the middle of it it's gotta get done and like look man you're gonna wear a couple hats here it's just how it is
1: and well, maybe that's and how maybe something... that's how it, maybe that's how my career evolved into what it to what it is yeah. you know and I that's, that's a great observation that I never thought about because Tom Savini was the same way. Tom was my mentor. He's the guy who gave me my first job. And <clears throat> he was a multi hyphenate. He was a stuntman. and he right, was he's an actor in Tarantino he movies. Was, yeah, he was in Quentin's movies. You but guys are buddies in the, uh, uh Dawn. Dustle Dawn, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, there's a documentary that's going to air on Shudder on December 16th that's about him. It's called Smoke and Mirrors. I oh, don't know why. And it sort of chronicles his career. And I, they interview me. You can tell how old the interview is because my hair was really short. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But maybe that was how I became exposed to somebody who could do more than just one job because I worked with him who was an actor and a magician and a special effects makeup artist and a stunt coordinator and all that stuff. So never thought about that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean... When you talk about Jaws, mm-hmm. like I can't go into the ocean without a sharp rock. Like, no. I, like that that, movie, I think it's probably one of my favorite movies. Mm. I got to work with, in, uh, for about a second with uh, Dreyfus. Oh yeah? Like I, 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 When I was a kid and I saw Jaws, and you're a young actor watching a movie, you're like, who, who would I be in this movie? And I was like, okay, I'd probably be the Dreyfus part if I mm. was at the right age <laughs> at the right time, you know? Um, so I really connected with that, and uh, and that movie, you know, getting to work with Dreyfus. Um, we the movie is on hiatus, but that just being able to work with him uh, and hear, you know, just seeing him over the years, telling me, the, the shark is working, the shark is working. Famous, yeah, the
1: famous story,
0: yeah. So that shark, which fascinated you. This was a mechanical disaster. As this, like, like, like Spielberg was gonna like kill himself over this shark, yeah, which didn't work. You know, Dreyfus. I don't know. You probably. See, you... Oh, I, I'm
1: in the documentary. So you're in you're, it. it.
0: Yeah, I'm in it, so I know exactly what you're talking okay, about. Okay, so the the story. So Dreyfus <laughs> has told the story like a million times, mm-hmm. where they're sitting on set and they have the loudspeakers, and all the whole like half the summer they're hearing the shark isn't working. The shark isn't working, oh, yeah. and then finally one summer, one what, at the end of the summer they say he hears. The shark is working and that's right. when they knew they had a hit, you know, that that story. <laughs> so when I was working with him on this uh this movie, um that we're still working on, he uh it was just so cool to pick his brain about that. And he um I had this funny thing with him because, you know, he's he, he's getting up there yeah. and um he uh I think he had like a, some something with his back or something. And uh so I had this funny thing with him, like well, I would see him on set and I felt like, you know, he was like an uncle or something. Like, I felt like I knew him, you know, because, mm-hmm. you, you know, and um, so I would go up to him and I would say, how you doing, man? Is the shark working? Is the shark working today? And he would say, yeah, the shark. The shark is working today. like I had this little... Very funny.
1: Uh, you work with him on Poseidon, right? I, uh, Poseidon, and actually, I cast him in Piranha. Right. Okay. He, did see, he He did a... Christopher campaign, Lloyd was in there, right? Christopher Lloyd was yeah. in it um alex aja who's a who's a, a really good friend of mine fantastic uh, filmmaker they wanted the opening is they wanted richard dreyfus and then there they couldn't work it out and as it turns out um he's rep was represented by uh the same agent that mickey Rourke is represented by and i work with mickey a ton so i was having dinner with this guy yeah david and um And I said, hey, you know, we really would love to try to get Dreyfus in there. And he's like, well, what are the dates again? And I said, said, well, let me see if I can make it work. So I called Alex Aja and I said, hey, I think we might be able to make the Dreyfus thing work. Yeah. Um, So of course the gag in in the, he's in the opening scene. He's only in like for five minutes. We got, he wore the same wardrobe that Hooper would have worn. So basically he's playing Hooper. Wow. In Piranha, and in the opening, like the boat starts to spin, and he gets sucked down, and he gets killed by the piranha. That's awesome. But I have a great photo of me on set with with Alex and Richard, and we're just standing there, and he's in the Hooper outfit—the blue knit cap and the jean jacket. And, yeah. Um, you know, we shot that movie on Lake Havasu, and we would take the ferry out to location every day. And it'd take like a half hour or so to get out to where the, you know, it was probably the closest that I ever came to shooting jaws because when we did piranha, it was the same kind of thing. You'd have the hero boat and then you'd have the camera boat and you'd have all the support boats and they were all anchored around. They'd have to anchor all the boats down. But we were in Lake Havasu. We weren't in the ocean. So we had, it was a different world. But I remember like a guy came over and went, Hey, Alex wants to talk to you. They would send a jet ski to pick me up on on our makeup effects boat yeah. and take me over to his boat. And I thought that's that was probably the closest that I ever came to working on Jaws where Great. behind the scenes you don't see the eight other boats that are there with, you know, the grip equipment and the camera equipment and the makeup guys and the and the guys operating the shark in in the, the case of Jaws. So the uh, so that movie had the the exact same impact uh, as it did on you on me but it, i was probably the guy who would be like i'm the shark you know i want to be the shark yeah 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 um, but what i found interesting and and that the shark is still working or not working story i think is interesting because none of that came out when the movie came out all that stuff came out when they started doing the special features Right. And they started interviewing everybody. And even Spielberg talked about it a little bit, but I have newspaper clippings from like Newsweek and newspaper clipping from Time magazine when the movie came out. Ever, you know, nobody ever talked. They were trying to convince the world at one point that, that they were sharks. real sharks. Right, right, They're yeah. like, we sent a camera crew down to yeah. Australia and we shot with real sharks.
0: Yeah.
1: Um we but trained I don't, them. I don't think that it came out until, until later right. that the sharks were were almost a disaster. Diff- yeah, I you know listen as an effects guy. Yeah, I try not to use the word disaster. Okay, because I, I i look at I look at Jaws as a triumph in technology, because first of all, these guys said, "Yeah, we can build it," without ever having built anything like it before. Yeah, we can put it in the ocean. Yeah, it can do this. Yeah, it can do that. And it's very much like, listen, you know the way our world is. Our world is a producer will call you and say, hey, we need this thing in six weeks. We have no time. We have no money. And it has to like be a fully self-contained T-Rex that has to run across the parking lot. Right. And you're like, guys, there's no fucking way we can do that. There's no way. And you are like, ah. But the challenge is there. So, so... You're like, like, well, let me figure it out. Yeah. And then you, you rise figure to the it out. Occasion. Then you figure it out. Not that we ever built a fully running trans, uh, Tyrannosaurus. That'd be cool. But then you figure it out. But then here's what happens. Then they come back to you and they go, okay, now we have four weeks and even less money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a bigger challenge. Right. Like they don't understand. And Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi, um, who I've done tons of movies with, they, Rob gave me one of the most interesting analogies. That I've ever heard in Hollywood, and they're like, "The money hose," and I'm like, "What's the money hose?" They said, "Oh, we were. This is when we were doing Army of Darkness." Yeah. And I remember we were building all these puppets, and we're like, "Rob, we, think we, you know, Sam keeps asking for a little bit more. We need a little bit more money," and he's like, yeah sorry, pal, we don't have the money hose on this one." And I'm like, "What's the money hose?" <laughs> I said, "Oh, money when it. we did Dark Man." Anytime they had a problem, they would just turn a hose and they would... <laughs> like yeah. a fire hose filled with money. Right. And the problem would go away. Right. And I was like... So I always joke, like, can I have a money hose? Right. I really I really want one just to make the problems go away. But they don't. And mm. I think one of the most interesting things about my career in this company is we have been fortunate enough to pull off the impossible. Over and over again, um,
0: with I, I mean, I see it on Creep Show too. Like the most recent, the Creep Show, the Creep yeah. Show you're working yeah. on, okay? Creep Show TV show, right? The web series that I think everyone yeah. needs to watch because I'm looking at this model here of this this mini alien demon stop area. motion. By okay, the way. that yeah. you guys created, and that's a miracle that you guys made that happen. I couldn't believe that I was seeing that when we went to the premiere. And then my favorite bit was the the werewolf the werewolf mm-hmm. um, uh, section the the World War II werewolf section yeah um, and you said your reaction to that I was like oh man I love that I love I, my thing is I love werewolves yeah and he said yeah but we had to do like a you know a flip book thing with it and that was almost my favorite part of it well no I listen I love that idea of it but that's honestly. the beauty of it I love how. <clears throat> They, they they cut off the time. They cut off your money, and then suddenly you're like, okay, we got to create something. You go back to the drawing board, and then what we, what what you create suddenly becomes someone's favorite thing in the whole thing.
1: Well, listen, I I, I will give the writer Rob Schraub a lot of credit for that because Rob is a, a you know he writes on Rick and Morty. He's a really great writer. He was so into creep show. Like I think. I think when they announced that Creepshow was going to happen, he yeah. was probably, like, literally at Shutter's doorstep the next morning, like, ready to go, because he, he was that into it. And when we talked about that beat, and he had sort of, he pitched the idea of the flipbook transformations, because he's a big comic book guy. Yeah. And, you know, I think he was a little like, I don't know if Greg's going to buy it. He may not go for it or not. It's perfect. But I said, you know, listen, dude, the truth of the matter is, we're never going to be able to compete with American Werewolf in London. We're never going to be able to compete with any werewolf transformation. So to be clever and and stay in the spirit of it um, made complete sense to me. And there were a lot of instances where we did that. But in that particular, that particular beat, he put that in the pitch. And he was like, oh, yeah. And he literally referenced, like, you know, like, the Hulk, When the Hulk is hulking out and you see, like, the lines behind him, mm-hmm. like, radiating outward and yes. the color changes, he, he, he had, you know, he was really down for a lot of that stuff. But Creepshow overall, really, it was sort of a labor of love in terms of, we well, did use every trick in the book, yeah. you know, like, like that puppet yeah. of Bob. That's the stop motion puppet. Yeah. Um, and I remember I read. You know, I was I so impressed. With I, I that, didn't man. read a lot of reviews because I didn't want to have my heart broken because you know. I'm Fuck kinda, the reviews, man. I'm kind of sensitive, dude, about that kind of shit. So I didn't read any of the reviews, and ultimately they were mostly great. And then I picked one. And it was like, wow, the CG on Bob looked really bad. And I'm like, well, you're an idiot because there was no it CG. Was it was a rod puppet. Wow. Um, and then a stop motion animated puppet. So I I wanted to, you know, and a lot of people are like, oh, you embraced the old school. Yes. And I'm like, it's not that it's old school. It's stylized, and it's, and and the one funny thing about shooting creep shows at the rap party, that like, everybody came to, like, nobody. You go to rap parties, like, you know, if you're lucky if, like, 60% of the crew go, because everyone's like, I'm over it, I'm done, you know, screw this, I'm yeah. on to my next job. Yeah. Everybody came, and they all were like, this was the most fun. ah And I was like... I, of course, me, I was in agony the whole time because I was stressed out about everything, and I was like, oh. You wanted to be I, right, man. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, were well, we on the same show? Because I don't remember. But a lot of people were like, dude, every fucking three days, you brought some new creature on set, wow. some new creation, and they're used to working where it's like, oh, it's a green screen, or you just, hey, look up, there's a green ball up here, and pretend it's a monster. But we made the monsters. We made it. And... I was I was really proud that everybody responded to Creepshow with the intent of knowing that it was a passion project and that it was a labor of love. People got it. And that was, to me, you know, like, if they hadn't have greenlit season two, I would have been like, you know what? I accomplished what I set out to accomplish, which is to tell stories and let people have fun. So,
0: By the way, I remember, I'm looking back on it, and I think the freakiest one wasn't even the goriest one. It wasn't even the... It wasn't it even had a creature in it. It was, it was the haunted dollhouse. Movie, yeah, which was so. Yeah, that was like a mini Shining, man.
1: It, and and it's you know listen, the, every story had a different tone to it. Like some yeah. were funny, some were really dark, some were kind of out there. That one, I read that story and I loved it. And it, what's funny about it is, is that I had read it while we were shooting the finale for Walking Dead last year. Last year, the snow episode. And I was sitting with Kaylee Fleming, and I said, "Hey, I have this really, really cool story, Um, but it's got a little girl in it, and I, you're the only person that I that I can imagine doing it." And so she was like, "Oh, that was like she was like excited that I would think of her." Meanwhile, I'm like looking at this this little force of nature that is Kaylee. And then when we started pre-production, like I always kind of joke and say, oh, well, she was the first actor we cast in Creepshow. Hmm. And then production's like, well, she's not local. Why do we have to fly her in? Can't we just get anybody? <laughs> I'm like, No, we can't just get anybody. And then when the director came on, he's like, well, do I have a say in who we're casting? I'm like, nope, she's already cast. And she's just so magnificent. And it's funny because That's she's good. still a little kid. Yeah. So, like, the stuff that's scary to her versus the stuff that's scary to us, I sent her, like, when we were done cutting the episode, I sent it to her immediately because I wanted her to see it. Yeah. And she was like, oh, my God, we turned all the lights on afterwards. We were, like, really scared. Yeah, yeah. No, that one, she's a freaky one. Yeah, it was, listen, they're all, it's kind of funny because when people ask me what my favorite episode is, I have no idea because... Mm -hmm. Uh, I love all of them for different reasons. Um, And I think the fact that we actually pulled it off and did it at all makes me sort of love all of them. And now that I'm into developing stories for season two, you know, I'm smarter. I'm older. I know what mistakes to avoid. I'll make the same ones again because they're like, oh, don't get stories with kids and don't get stories with you know, and of course, like, if you start you know, a lot of the submissions, a lot of the characters in these in these horror stories are all like between like twelve and hmm. seventeen years old. Hmm. A lot of the leads are because that's the time when people are the most impressionable and they're the and I found that really interesting this year that I would say seventy percent of the stories that were submitted to us had kids in them. Hmm. And I'm like, how do you equate horror with kids if you go back to like universe
0: Stranger Things is like a big
1: yeah but even before that you know I I just thought I just found it really intriguing that that you put these kids in these situations maybe it's because they are malleable and they would potentially believe innocence yeah they would believe something supernatural more than an adult would believe something supernatural so um, it's I just I just read them and there was, was so many of them were like oh 12 year old you know there was a Stephen King story that had like a 12 year old kid that gets kidnapped and turns out he's a vampire and like all this kind of interesting stuff and I at one point I stepped back and I went there's kids in all these episodes like when did that did I miss something I don't know. <laughs>
0: uh creep show 2 was my introduction to creep show universe ah and uh so but specifically scared the shit out of me because we used to go up and you know go to a lake and you know ocean like between jaws and that the raft the raft Mm -hmm. i i I couldn't go into water that i couldn't see through it was like (laughs) it was very scared to this day Um, and that was teenagers, you know. So I'm someone who, uh, yeah, yeah, right. So they're or basically they're in the 20s, right? And they're they're swimming across this lake, and there's this like toxic ooze that gets them. And it's these. It's beautiful. It's youth, mm-hmm. and it's that's what is so scary about it. I think it's like, can the kid beat it? Yeah, he's got the stamina to beat it. He'll uh, beat it. No, fucking no, <laughs> thing eats him no, land No, he didn't. He didn't beat it. But yeah, you have. A, I remember you talking to you about this. You were
1: you so you worked on that. I or? built the blobs. You fucking
0: built I've this thing built that them. scared me my entire
1: life. It's really, it's really funny. Um, I was working. I just finished Evil Dead Two. <sighs> it's crazy. Man. I was working on Evil Dead Two. Listen, you know, I got my start with George Romero, uh, and Richard Rubenstein, and Tom Savini. My first job was Day of the Dead. Yeah. So right after that, I moved to New York. So I was twenty years old. Where were you living? years old. I lived in the West Village, right above Bleecker Bob's Records. Awesome. That was my and there and there was a pizza place on the corner. So like at eleven a.m., like my whole apartment smelled like pizza. <laughs> that's, that's um, awesome. So they started. That's when they started season one of Tales from the Dark Side. They huh. shot in Long Island City, and Richard Rubenstein. Interestingly enough, I think he kind of looked at me as. Um, I think he looked at me as sort of his mentor. Like, he wanted, like, I think Richard saw, like, a little bit of him in me. So he wanted sort of, like, to groom me to be a producer. Right. This was, you know, and meanwhile, all I gave gave a shit about was Monsters. (laughs) So I went, I worked on Tales from the Dark Side, and then left New York, did a couple other effects movies, Invasion USA, and then I, you know, I just worked around a lot. Uh, So ultimately, I finished Evil Dead 2 in the spring of 86, or fall of 80s, summer of 86, fall of 86. And then we started Creepshow 2. And Richard had hired me, and they wanted me to have the same job I had on Day of the Dead, which was sort of like, to be the assistant to the lead makeup effects guy so that I could kind of integrate with production what was going on, Because that's what I did on Day of the Dead with Tom. Like, that gave Tom the freedom to do what he needed to do. And I would, like, hire the crew and order the supplies and sort of manage to do the breakdowns of the script, all that shit. So then during Creepshow 2, there was a little friction between me and one of the other guys. So they sent me off to Arizona, to Prescott, Arizona, where we shot the movie. And they're like, you're going to make all the blobs. So (laughs) I was there with... um, the production designer. You
0: got that job because you were button heads with the guy? Or yeah, <laughs> well,
1: I think they just were like, well, they... Richard wasn't going to fire me because I was Richard's guy. So they're that's like, so well, weird. we'll take you out of this situation and the we'll put him someplace else. So I remember being in this. So that's um... the
0: scariest thing in my mind from the entire movie, I remember.
1: and Dude, I literally had colored latex and one of those roller squeegees and I was latexing stuff onto the floor and pouring polyfoam into swirly circles Ew. and and uh and ed who was our production designer special effects guy built like the ring that we would put the blobs in and we would drag them through the water and then we had like cannons that would shoot slime right out to uh, on every, and then of course when the whole production got there because i got there early when the whole production got there they're like oh you should be back with the makeup effects guys because you know we we need you over there yeah and um so it was a super fun it was really fun I mean, let again, the work
0: like, for speak for you you know
1: well yes and you know i think because my career was like this dawn of the dead one of my favorite movies evil dead one of the most terrifying films ever made creep show one of my favorite movies I within being in the business for 5 years, I worked on sequels to all three of those movies. Yeah. I worked on Day of the Dead, Evil Dead 2 and Creepshow 2. So I felt like, damn, all these movies that I loved, and like now I'm on set with the same filmmakers that yeah. did the original movies. Um so Creepshow 2 was super fun. You just fell um, into that, man. I mean, like you just manifested that. I I I I, I really it. think I willed it to happen. Yeah. Uh, uh I'll tell you a quick story about that. So after I did Day of the Dead and I was like super into like I was always collecting movie posters and like I loved Nightmare on Elm Street. And I loved like all this shit. So I had a little room in my parents basement that was like my office. I'm like, oh, I need an office now. So I had posters on the wall. I had a Creepshow poster and I had like I'm sure I had like a Dawn of the Dead poster. I had a couple of posters. And my parents traveled a lot at that point and i would shoot videos and i would send videos like on beta i had like one of the handy cams used yeah, to yeah. beta tape in <laughs> and i would shoot videos and send videos to them and my younger brother about eight months ago found one of the videos that i had shot for my parents no oh, way wow. and here's here's how the sheer force of will um I'm walking around the house and I'm like saying, hey, mom, dad, you know, everything's good. We got, you know, eight inches of snow and there's the dog and here's this. And, you know, they would like go down to Florida and leave us alone and we'd have parties at the house all the time and, and go crazy. But they, you know, we're, we're pretty responsible kids. Nice. There's a shot of me going into the basement and I'm filming my office. Here's my office and there's a picture of Freddy Krueger and there's this and there's that. And there's a creep show poster on the wall. Uh-huh. And I'm like, hey, look, and there's my new poster. And I tilt to the bottom of the poster and I say, one day, mom, you're going to see my name on one of those posters. Oh, wow. I have the video on my phone. And it's crazy because not only is it is it just that sort of age old story of like the kid who wants to go to Hollywood and make it because he loves it, but that I was... That I said, hey, one day you'll see my name <laughs> on this poster. Yeah. It was a creep show poster. So when we started doing the promotion for Shudder, and we did the first poster for Creepshow, and my name was on it, I was like, I predicted this. Like, how the <laughs> fuck did that happen? You have the tape. To I feel it. like I'm... I have the I'm, a loop over I feel like I should put it on Instagram and, like, show the world that, like... Yeah. That uh, it was something that I was so passionate about and I loved so much that out of sheer force of will it happened. And I don't know how the fuck it happened, but it did. So, um, so then I worked on Creepshow 2 and that was, a, that was super fun. And you know, I ended up dating one of the actresses on the show, Pam. Um, Jeremy, oh god, I said Pam, Jeremy Green, that was her sister, Pam. Oops, twins. Um, and uh, and that changed my life in a different way because Jeremy lived in New York and she's hot,
0: man. Yeah, yeah,
1: she's yeah. so hot. Uh, if you're listening to this, Jeremy. <laughs> um, but uh, it was just interesting because that's from that point. That's when I moved to LA and then started my company in 1988 with uh, with Howard and Bob. And you know, Kurtzman left the company. 15, 16 years ago, right. so, you know, we sort of started together, and then, you know, for the most part, camby has been Howard and I for most of the time.
0: Um, and today is Friday the 13th, which is so, like, you know, very appropriate. Um, has it always, uh, Friday the 13th has always
1: been lucky for me.
0: Hmm. Has it, what about you?
1: Um, I don't know if I ever noticed whether it was unlucky or lucky for me. I don't remember anything bad ever happening. I didn't get killed, or, have, or chased by some hockey mask dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think thirteen is special
0: because it's uh, it means metamorphosis because on the you know on the clock it's it's one but it's also thirteen. You know, it's right. Like, so it's it's a uh, thirteen is
1: special for people who create constantly that's interesting because i always i always remember like when i was younger like how come there's no 13th floor on hotels right i was like oh people thought it bad,
0: was luck, bad luck bad luck so
1: I, I feel like 13 gets a bad rap it does so now you're look let's turn it around
0: yeah um do you want to know what your name means i'll do this for all my special guests sure i know what gregory and i know what nicotero means Gregory. gregory gregory means watchful and alert Hmm. Okay Mm -hmm. Nicotero means victorious warrior
1: Oh really? Where'd you find that? I fucking found it man Nicotero
0: means victorious Uh, 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 Nico means victorious Tero means warrior
1: yeah, I have
0: no idea. Every, it's, every, no one knows what their fucking name was, and they oh. find out. It's like it's the
1: coolest name that ever. That is cool. Yeah, dude. At least it's not like limp dick loser. <laughs> no, it's fucking like the worst. watchful victorious warrior. Huh? I love it. Well, you know me because you've seen me. You could you I mean, I vouch for that. Yeah. Um, pretty great. Wow.
0: Okay. Uh, Beehive Cafe in Pittsburgh. You ever go there? Do you
1: remember that? No.
0: Okay, that, I went to pre college there, and uh, for in, Carnegie Mellon.
1: Oh, at CMU.
0: Yeah, and uh, for before I went to college, I was looking for acting schools, and I went to the program there. And all I remember are the girls, and I remember uh, the Beehive Cafe, which was like this amazing movie theater where you went, and they had you can order ice cream, and you know it's like food to the. I'd never been to a place where it was like food to the. To what the year
1: table. was Ninety three. Yeah. See, I moved to LA in eighty five. It probably that. was okay. There. Okay, gotcha. Listen, I mean, I love Pittsburgh, and I I miss it. I miss it a lot. I mean, my wife, you know, ironically, is a Southern California girl, so, like, the idea of even going to Pittsburgh in the wintertime, she's like, no.
0: thank you. No. Um, are you as excited about the the Black Crow's Shake Your Money Maker Tour oh, as I am?
1: We're going. We're going. I'm I, going. I, I'm, no, I... We're going I got us hooked up Yeah Tickets I, I, I've if, I've they're never They're my favorite band Yeah And that too. album specifically That album You know I, I, I always think about Nobody ever asked to me it's a, it's a very Famous question That I've never been asked Which is like The Desert Island Like What are the five movies And what are the five books And what are the five albums That oh, yeah. you would take I mean I always I'm always fascinated with that and I always, I think in my head, I think about what those would be in case somebody ever asked me. But nobody fucking ever asked me. So I'm like, well, fuck you then. <laughs> Give them here, man. Shake Your Moneymakers is a wow. Desert Island album for me. Me too. I, I remember when it came out, I was working uh, on, Fangoria Magazine did yep. three movies. They financed these three uh, low-budget movies that we shot in uh, Eagle River, Wisconsin in the winter. It was miserable. Crazy, but I got to direct Oliver Reed and Elkie Summer, so I was excited about Holy that. Holy shit. Um, and Elf. that album, that album, every single song on that album, I saw them a bunch of times. Um, I almost, that's really funny, I almost wore my Black Rose t-shirt today from one of the tours that I went. I saw them with Jimmy Page when mm. they toured. Holy shit. Uh, I saw them at the, uh, at the, um, the Greek Theater. I, I, I love them and, and I have a friend in um, in Atlanta who's very tight with the band. So like the minute that they announced it, like I posted it on Instagram and That's I That's how like, I found out. I, I saw
0: from your feed, I was like, Oh you fucking kidding me?
1: I was I was so excited and they did two shows. They did two shows already. They did one at the Troubadour and they did one in New York and it was while we were filming the finale for Walking Dead. Otherwise I would have been like, I'm on a plane, I'm gonna go see them because I, I just love the band I love their music and um, the fact that even my cheesy little Rocking Dead band played a Black Crow song when we played oh, yeah. made me super excited so uh, I already know the tour dates of when they're playing and where they're playing and they'll be in Atlanta next summer like July I have to see them we're going we're going um hope to see, I hope to see them before then I'm waiting for them to do another pop-up show that I can try to go to, but I had a dream
0: about I, I've been having crazy dreams about the show recently and being I'm sure you have it all the time, being chased by zombies and whatever. Never.
1: Never? Never.
0: Wow. Never. I just started having them. I don't know why. Maybe because I missed the show. But
1: uh <laughs> We just finished. I We're know. Talking I, about. It's I, only been two weeks.
0: I know. But um so I was, you know, you imagine like, oh, how are you gonna? How am I gonna go out? And I, and in my dream, this is how I went out.
1: You, uh, you, if you put it out in the world, then it might
0: I happen. would love to dream to go out like this.
1: Oh, okay, good. Okay, yeah.
0: Just fucking oh, whatever. I'm I'm i I'm, I'm exhausted on my last fucking thing. I'm surrounded by zombies. I'm about to go out, and I start singing from the Black Crows. I don't know if we can get this. Um, that that little song right at the end when i'm gone lord have mercy mm. on me that fucking beautiful song Ooh, it's giving me chills oh that's good i woke up and i was like well, "God damn it i want to maybe like
1: maybe when we go see them and we we go backstage we'll we'll pitch that idea oh my god i would i mean that's crazy um so so you have a band you already mentioned that Mm-hmm. do you love it I do you well listen I'll tell you something funny about about that <laughs> I'm a little regretful to be honest why because I loved and love playing guitar but I never took lessons
0: So I it's always and
1: taught myself and then I realized I never played in a band I never played with people I would like put the record on and I would play like Leonard Skinner or Led Zeppelin or Stevie Ray Vaughan or whatever I would play along with the record but I was always doing it by myself. Right. So when this idea of Gino and I, Gino Crugnali who's been like one of my best friends for a billion years. Um, we always had this sort of bucket listing. We're going to play at the rap party one year. We're going to just let's just just get a couple of us together. So during like season four or season five of Walking Dead I'd start putting lists together of songs and Gino plays drums and he actually played with a couple of his buddies from Philly so they would play like once a year they'd just play a gig at a bar for 300 people and he was like oh it's so much fun we really should do it so two years ago at the end of season nine Gino started talking to a lot of the people on the crew and turns out like Garrett Zenner, who's one of our main zombies, plays bass. And uh, Nikki Harris, who's our contact lens tech, she's a singer. And so we ended up putting a band together that com- was comprised of every single member except one is part of the crew. And we picked a bunch of songs and we went down into the, the basement. So, of course, I went to like, took all my per diem and... Went to Guitar Center and bought, like, a PA and the whole setup. So we set it up in the basement of my house in Georgia. And we said, okay, everybody, here's 15 songs. Learn the songs, and then we're all going to get together and we're going to play. And we got together and we played, and it was so weird. Why? Because I had never played with other people before. (sighs) And, I, of course, I recorded it all on my phone, so I have snippets of video of like us I think the first song we played was Sweet Home Alabama and I listened to it and I went wow like it's, it's crazy to me that as something that happened is just kind of a fluke we have fantastic chemistry together that's great and we sound amazing together that's amazing so here's the funny thing so we played twice we practiced twice then we played the rap party and it was really funny this was a season 9 rap party so Angela Kang's up there, and she's giving her speech, thanking the crew, and they played the gag reel. Yeah. And we're coming up, and Norman introduced us, we're coming up next. My heart was literally <laughs> about to explode. Like, I can only imagine it's like yeah, man. being an actor and having, like, this huge scene. Yeah, yeah. And you've rehearsed it 100 times, even though we only rehearsed twice. But it's all different when they say, roll cameras, and it's that moment of, you don't know what liquid's going to come out of what hole of your body because it's <laughs> fucking terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So we played our first song, and I was like, literally, I swear to God, yeah. I can feel my heart pounding. Uh, we played the first song, and we made it through. And I remember looking out, and the entire crew, there 200 people there, and the whole crew, I remember like Janelle, our extras casting people, and like Vince, our hair. Uh, they're all standing there looking at us, and they're like, what are you guys doing on stage? Like, they, none of us really none of them knew we really played right. they just thought we were like what's going on like, yeah, yeah. and we did our first song and i remember the looks on everyone's faces they were like Whoa, holy shit like these guys sound really good awesome. so the irony is so we play the, sh- the first we get through the first song and i'm like oh thank god and i'm like wait we have nine more or ten more i thought like getting through it's like doing one take and okay cut yeah, yeah. of, kind of. we're moving on no, we had to no. keep playing. So yeah. I was fucking terrified. But I had a blast. Um, and when it was over, it was that, like, adrenaline. sense of, like, oh, my God, we just did it. Yeah. But I had no, it was like, I had sort of selective amnesia. I didn't really remember what it felt like because I was so nervous and my fucking adrenaline was going.
0: Yeah.
1: So um, the, manager the manager of my restaurant, the uh, manager of my restaurant, Nick and Norman's in Shanoi, yep, said, hey, would you guys ever think about ever coming and playing at the restaurant or playing something. And I went, yeah, I'd love to do that. That would be fun. I have a fucking restaurant. Why would I not, why would we never play there? So I get a call in February saying, hey, so we're doing this, um, we're doing this music, first annual Sonoy Music Festival, and we want you guys to headline. Oh, shit. And I'm like, well, you know, we've only played three <laughs> times together. Yeah, why, are we he- why are we headlining? are like, no, We're- no, it would be really fun. And, you know, it would be a great draw. And, you know, the Walking Dead group and everybody. So it would be really fun. So, <clears throat> so I said, well, how many people? And they're like, well, it could be anywhere from like 3,000 to 9,000 people. I went, 9,000 oh, people. Oh, my God. So I call the other people in the band and I'm like, what do you guys think? Should we do this? And they're like, yeah, fuck we should do it. And I was like, and by the way, it was the weekend after Jekyll Island. Oh my god. So you're exhausted. So we so we had one rehearsal. We had one we played together for like one afternoon. So now now in the history of the band The Rocking Dead, we've played together four times. That's <laughs> crazy. That's it. And were... then and then I directed the premiere For Walking Dead And then I went to LA I edited the premiere Then I came back We went to Jekyll Island We shot the opening On the beach And the following weekend Is the festival So I'm like I don't even know I don't even know Like part, I kept Rome. I was like Fuck Why did I even agree to this This is a terrible idea So we go down the morning That the show's gonna that we're gonna play, and they're getting the stage set up, and the stage was like eight feet long, six feet long. I'm like, there's not enough room. I said, you guys have to get some risers or extensions and extend it out. Otherwise, we're all there's no room for us to play. So they built a little front little runway area for Nikki to 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 sing, and so we come down. It's raining all day, so I'm like, well, we're gonna play in the rain, and someone's gonna electrocute it. it's just, oh, this man. Is just it was. So then we go into, um, we go to Nick and Norman's, have a couple beers. We're getting closer to playing and we get out there. There's like a little VIP area with tables. And then there was, you know, then the, the, the whole crowd went, if you're at the bottom of main street in Sonoy where the coffee shop is, and you look up the whole road, all the way up was filled with people. Holy shit. And, uh, And we went out and we started playing and it was so much fun. Like the second time we played, it was a complete 180 from how I felt when I played the first one. The first time I played, I was really nervous and I was really just like, I just didn't know what to expect. So the second time, it's like having a baby. Like the first time you're like, oh my God, like how are we going to feed it? Who's going to change how we do it? Then you have the second baby and you're like, I got this. Yeah, yeah. It's what it kind of weirdly felt like. Yeah. It felt like I had so much fun and I had my amp there and I, like, they kept bringing beers up to stage. So I was stacking my, my Heineken's <laughs> on top of my amp. And then like after the second song, they all flew off and exploded. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was, it, there was just a whole different energy. To it, and I had so much fun. Like I shredded the whole side of my finger; was bleeding everywhere because I was playing so hard and having so much fun. Blisters
0: on my fingers,
1: and it was just—it was amazing. And I'll tell you, it. Going back to your question, because this this whole little segue, of why I'm a little regretful is, I wish I would have done that 30 years ago. I wish I would have would have solicited being in a band or playing with people when I was younger. Because it was so much fun. And I feel like I'm 56 years old. I'm the best guitar player I've ever been. I'm confident in how I play. Uh, I'll, you know, I bought a couple new guitars and like when I'm in Georgia at night, the one thing I do, when we come home from set and we're trying to unwind for a minute and um, I'll sit on my, I'll sit on my bed and I'll play a couple songs. and I bought a little book and whatever songs I'm playing that night, I'll write them into this journal. So like a month later, I can go back and look at it and go, oh, yeah, I was working on that and then go back and work on it again. Because I feel like so often when you're learning music or you're writing music or you're playing music, you kind of forget because you get, you know, you sort of get caught up in like, oh, I really want to learn Going to California by Led Zeppelin. And it's like Travis picking, retuning, and it's really complicated. So you spend a lot of time on it. Two weeks after practicing that, which is now the new song that I'm working on. Mm. Um, I forgot that, like, oh, well, I was learning Blackbird the week before that or Behind Blue Eyes. or So, I, so all the stuff that I learn, I write it all down. Hotel California, like, I, I've been just um, sort of trying to keep my playing open. But, I, but I, I, I'm, I'm regretful that I didn't do that much earlier in my life. I'm
0: pretty convinced that that adrenaline rush afterward that you get that reciprocal energy from the audience that keeps you young. I think you're like I'm pretty sure. Man. Well, then
1: I'm then I'm 12 years old. based on, <laughs> yeah, based on that one, uh, on that one gig, because it was super fun. And you know, like now we're we're talking it we're talking about doing it again. We're gonna do it. Um, we're gonna do it a couple more times next year.
0: Um, your career's... So fucking... It's extensive, so I'm just going to do, like... A, I'm going to kind of, like, run through a bunch of stuff. So...
1: it would be like a speed dating version. Yeah, basically. <laughs>
0: not o- okay, so you're not only the, the VFX master of The Walking Dead for 10 seasons... Makeup effects. Makeup effects. Yeah. For 10 seasons, soon to be 11. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you as well. The- well. Hey, I've only been here a little bit. Uh, I-, I love working with you, okay, when you direct, because... I get to see the you know the genius at work obviously and th- those moments where you're just like okay we don't have enough time for this and then you come up with a fucking miracle and because that I know that you know I know that I'm, when I'm working with you we're like like the beach scene like like you create the most iconic moments on the show that I I think when you're directing right, you. um Okay, talk about Jaws. When I think about your career, uh, so how were you involved in Predator? Because that's basically Jaws on land, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Uh, well, you know, it's funny. When I moved to Los Angeles, I, the first company that I worked for in L.A. was Stan Winston. Stan Winston, who did, you know, Jurassic Park, and, you know, he, you know his, his, his company was one of the biggest. It was Rick Baker, Rob Bottin, Tom Savini, and Stan Winston. Crazy. So when I moved to Los Angeles in 85, the first job that I got hired on was a movie called Invaders from Mars, and I was sort of a puppeteer for like 2 weeks. And then they're like, "Oh, we need some help up in the shop." So, you know, they're building we're building alien stuff for aliens. Most of Stan and his crew had gone to had gone to England to start shooting, and I worked in his shop for a couple of weeks. So, um when they shot the original Predator, they had come back to LA and did some reshoots with uh, with the director, with John McTiernan, and we shot in, like, a warehouse down by LAX. And I got hired to, like, help suit up Kevin Peter Hall and Puppeteer and, and like, make, uh, like, Bill Duke's Exploding Head. I worked on that and, like, when the predator rips the spinal cord out, yeah, like I built all that, and like I remember going to going to Ralph's and buying tripe, which is stomach lining, oh, man. and putting the tripe inside the exploding head so that we could blow the head up. So, <laughs> lo and behold, so I worked a couple weeks on the original Predator for additional shooting, and then when Predators came up, which was Robert Rodriguez' sequel, right. Um, because I have a, a great relationship with Robert and have done all of his 20 something movies, um, we got to recreate not only the original Predator, but create three new Predators. And, you know, it's always interesting when you reboot a franchise because you look at the actors, and the actors have clearly aged. So they don't look quite like the guy you remember. They look like the older version of the guy or the right. girl that you remember, but they're not the same. So when we did Predators, we were able to recreate what the original Predator looked like exactly because it was a guy in a suit and right. the mandibles and the and that was really to me something that was super exciting because we got to revisit that character. And I had a bunch of photos from set when we had I had worked on the original Predator. Of the head and the mask, I think I had a casting of one of the masks and stuff. So that world, I got to end up sort of being a part of that world and that franchise, which which was really was was super fun because I I loved it.
0: Um, so I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna run through the because there's so many movies, but I'm gonna run through the ones that really touched me growing up. Um, I've stuck with me for a long, long time and um. So dances with wolves? Mm hmm. Misery? Mm hmm. Okay. Just quick. The scene where she breaks his legs again the oblong, yeah. haunts me for, for eternity. Army well, the... I
1: have stories for all these. I bet you do. I can tell you if you want. If you, I'll tell you an tell tell interesting me that one. misery story. Please. So we. James Conman. We had had. Great. We had had. Uh, we had end up doing a lot of work for Castle Rock. At the time, you know, that was R- Rob Reiner and um, a lot of it was basically through Frank Darabont that I met Liz Glotzer, who was like head of, of, of Castle Rock. So at, at one point, we were doing like four or five projects for them. So we go in, we have a meeting with Rob Reiner, and in the book Misery, she cuts his leg off with an axe. Fuck. She doesn't hobble him, she cuts his foot off. So the first thing that they oh say God. is, well, listen, we can't cut his foot off because then. We No CGI. We, yeah, this was before all right. of that. So Rob Reiner was like, We we gotta come up, you know, with a different way of doing it. So this is what we wanna do. There's this thing called hobbling and they put the block of wood in between and sledgehammer. Oh my god. So um so we so Jimmy Kahn came up to the shop and we cast his legs and we made gelatin legs and punched hair in them. That was like one of my jobs was punching all the hair yeah. into the legs and um, and then I I remember we Harry Best. (laughs) fortunately it wasn't that so we with the special effects guy we drew we cut holes in the bed so when he was laying on the bed his legs were going straight down through the holes and then we attached the fake legs Um, and I remember they came back from lunch and Rob came over and went well where are the fake legs like yeah. you guys were supposed to be rigged up and ready I'm like well those are, yeah, the, they are. They are the fake legs and what's again you know I always I, I talk about this a lot because I think it's a really fascinating subject in directing and, and storytelling because you, you start with <clears throat> Kathy Bates puts the blocks of wood in between so it's real legs the block of wood goes in and then you have that close up of her and she hefts the sledgehammer up and you can tell that it's real. Yeah. Because in your head, you see that ugh, it takes a little e- exertion. So what we, we didn't want to use a rubber sledgehammer and his real legs. We wanted to use the real sledgehammer and the fake legs. So <laughs> we shoot his real legs. The blocks go in. And then you cut to his face. And then you cut up to her in the close-up. And she's like, God, I love you. And she Uh-oh. raises the sledgehammer <laughs> And then he's screaming, and you cut to the wide, and she swings it, and you can tell that it takes some effort, and swings it, and when she makes contact with the leg, we had a little mechanism in there, so that the leg could break, and that's, you only see one hit, Yeah, you you don't see, you know, you don't, we we made multiple legs, but it was funny, because we went to the cast crew screening, and... The girl that I was dating at the time, I took her to the theater, <laughs> and when we got to that scene, I was like, "Don't, don't scream, <laughs> because if you scream, you're gonna embarrass me. I don't want to be embarrassed because I was nervous. Because right. you know, like Rob was, I think Rob was sitting right behind me, and I was like, Fuck, like "You know, Rob Reiner's right behind. Right. Me, you know? So <clears throat> of course the scene comes up, raises the hammer, wham, she screams, bloody murder." <laughs> But meanwhile, everybody else in the audience yeah, yeah. screamed. I don't know why I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know what to expect. And so we're leaving the movie. Because you were
0: in it. You were close to I it. was.
1: I'm always too close to it. Right. So we're leaving the theater. And we walk out, and, and Rob comes over and shakes my hand. And, and I was like, that was crazy, man. It was Signature. unbelievable. And he said, I'll tell you, I knew we had something. Yeah. He said, when we did the first test screening, when she raises that sledgehammer the oxygen disappears from the theater because everybody goes (gasps) all at the same time. (coughs) And he said, when that happened, he said, I knew we had them. Whether you saw it or not, it was the anticipation of that moment. And I always remember that story because I always remember thinking that he recognized the collective audience reaction to something that was going to happen.
0: Uh, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Saw this movie in the theaters. Probably the most movie I've ever seen in my entire life.
1: Wow. Yeah. Twenty times. Wow. Yeah. You've seen it more than me. Um,
0: something about it. Uh, just the aesthetic of it. It's just so fucking cool.
1: It's it, it, listen. Quentin's movies all exist in the same universe. What did you? What did you do? What was your favorite? bit? We
0: got a story about that. <laughs> I
1: got a couple stories about that one too. Um, well, the I'll talk about the scene with Marvin in the car first. Beautiful, because uh, <laughs> <clears throat> it was a very interesting situation because I, Quentin and I, I he would, Phil always, Lamar. sorry, Phil Lamar was also on the show. I saw Phil not long ago. We we were we con, were I touring. Con. No, no, we were touring high schools. Oh, cool. I, I was at a high school looking at it for my. For my son and he was there and came over and I was like, I had your fake head in my office for ten years. Um, Samurai Jack. It's interesting because in the original draft of the script of Pulp Fiction, when they turn and shoot him, and they hit the bump and they shoot him. They don't kill him. They shoot him in the chest first, <sighs> and he's still alive. And Crazy. and John and Sam are arguing, and he's like, "Well, I got to." put him out of his misery. And he's like, wait, you want to shoot him again? Oh my God. What are you talking, so they get into an argument while they're, while he's he's in the back. And they're like, dude, this is some fucked up shit, I'm really (laughs) sorry. And if I remember correctly, he put his hand over his eyes and and killed him. Wow. So, Wow. In my recollection of it, and this is probably because, you know, like with Quentin's movies, it's too dark. we're not on set every single day. Right. We show up, we do our thing, um, except for like Inglourious Bastards when I was in Berlin for the whole shoot. But I, we showed up and Quentin, I'm like, okay, well, we got the head here for this. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm only going to shoot him once. And I went, wait, what? Why? And he goes, ah, I was just thinking about it. And, you know, it just doesn't seem right. I think it, it, it takes too much away from from, the two guys. Right. And I remember being a little disappointed because I thought that the banter between them was so clever huh. and so interesting that I loved that part of the scene. Because now it's like they hit the bump, you cut to head the outside explodes, yeah. and the head explodes and it covers the back window with with gore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I remember sort of missing. initially feeling that the way he had written it, I really, really loved. I mean, it works great both ways. Iconic. But, um, but I, mean, I remember that and thinking about it. And, the you know, and then we did, did the prosthetic the... in Uma's chest. Yeah. Uh, it was me and a guy named Wayne Toth that went and applied that. And we had a, we had a fake chest. For the stabbing, we had all the stuff ready, you know, and then when we, when we got there, I, the, we brought the fake chest in and we put the little lipstick with the X on it on the chest. And Quentin comes, in, he's like, "I don't need that." I'm like, "Really?" He's like, "No, no, no. I don't think I would ever show. I would never show the needle going in. I I don't need that piece of it because it's the anticipation on everybody else's faces." As to what I need. So he when you see down. the wide of him thrusting down, and then you cut to her face, <gasps> and then she gets up and she's moving around, and she looks down it's and, stuck look, in and there, it's yeah. stuck in her chest. Um, and I really, I really loved that uh, that he knew, even though as the story, you know, Quentin's the kind of filmmaker. It's everything's very organic and it grows and it evolves. And I've learned a ton from him, especially when once I started directing. I really understood uh, him a lot more because traditionally, when you do movies, you have pre-production and then you start you prep everything and then you start shooting and you shoot it and you know. But with with Quentin in particular, his movies take a different shape because he embraces his actors and he embraces the actual act of filmmaking. So in day one of prep, you can't ask a question about something that's going to happen five months from now. Mm. And I learned this on Django because on Django, uh, it was while we were doing season two of Walking Dead. And I had a specific question about like, well, how are they tying his wrists? And he was like, fuck it. I don't know, dude. Read the script. I, 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 You know, I I don't know. This was like, this was four months before we even started filming that scene wasn't going to shoot until eight months from then. And then I directed my first episode of Walking Dead. And then I went and worked on the opening scene of Django, like two weeks later, and Quentin sat on set with me. and said, tell me, what is, what, what, what did you like about directing? What was it like to you? So we spent a lot of time, like, just... He wanted my impressions of what it was like yeah. to direct, which I thought was really interesting and really fascinating. And then we got to that scene, which happened in, I think, in April of the next, this was December, this was April of the next year. And Quentin came up to the shop before they went to New Orleans to shoot, and I walked him through everything that we had built. I said, we got this dummy, and we have this, and we have this, and we have this. And he went, fuck, this is great. Like, how did you know to build all this? And I said, well, I wanted you to have all the tools that you needed so that your vision of the scene would not be compromised. And I had done it sort of unknowingly on Grindhouse because the scene in Grindhouse where the two cars crash and all the girls get killed in the car oh, crash, yeah, yeah. you know, in the script, Quentin had sort of written like, oh, and then this, ha- you know, like, leg gets ripped off and tire rips her face off. and the- But he didn't really... He hadn't thought about how to shoot it. He had thought about how to write it. Um, And what I loved about it is the way that he and I work together is I'll put together tests and I'll shoot video of all the tests and then I'll present them to him and then he'll look at them and he'll comment on them. Um, And ultimately, a lot of times, he ends up shooting the same angles that I shot on the tests. On Grindhouse, I... I had asked them, I said, put all four girls in the car and take a bunch of pictures of angles that you like, and then I'll use that to design the bodies. So instead of sort of saying to him, whoa, well, what do you want to see for each gag? I said, show me wh- where you think the camera will be, and then I'll figure it out. And that's what we did.
0: Reverse engineering. We,
1: w- yeah, because I was able to at least understand in his eye what he wanted to see in the frame. And then you know it's like funny because um, the one shot of um, Vanessa in the back seat she closes her eyes and then the wheel comes in and tears her face right off. right shit and we did we had a dummy of her with the skull, and then we we, we had an applique of the silicone face that went on, and we built like three or four dummies of each girl, so when we got to when we got to Austin, half the stage was all of these dummies of the girls and uh John McCloud, the physical effects, and Jeff Jeff Dashnod, the stunt coordinator, we worked out how all these rigs would work. And it was really, it was super fun because we tested everything. And I remember the first time we tested the wheel, when your car's driving, the wheel rotates clockwise or counterclockwise. So when we did the first test, the the wheel hit the head and the head went forward. And I was like, "Uh," I said, that doesn't really work. What, really, what you really want to see is the, the, the wheel hit and rip from the chin upward so that that head goes back. So when the wheel goes, the head flops forward and the skull is there. And they said, well, we have to change the direction of the wheel, and the wheel would never move that way. Right. And I said, yeah, but no one will ever know that. Huh. No one's going to notice if we spin the wheel the other direction because all they're going to think about is the fact that there's a spinning wheel that hit this girl in the face and tore her face off. So I convinced them to change the direction of the wheel, and that's the shot that you see in oh. the. Uh, that's the shot you see in the movie. Oh man, and we yeah. could be here for like not nine, nine hours.
0: That is true. Okay, so uh, which is fine because. Let's 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 try to wrap it up. You got one more story in here? Yeah. Okay. We
1: got about eight thousand. I,
0: I know you do. Okay, so we've been talking for about an hour and ten minutes. Um, okay. Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. Spawn, mm-hmm. The Green Mile.
1: I was on set for Green Mile. Uh, I was on set for what did you say before Green Mile?
0: Spawn, Spawn. Boogie Nights. Sp-
1: yeah, Spawn. Uh, Spawn's really interesting. Uh, McFarlane, man. I mean, he super... changed my life in comic book. And Todd, you know, Todd and I got to be really good friends on that show, and we still are. What was interesting is... He wants the, to
0: reboot Spawn.
1: I know. We're, we, we designed the stuff for him, like, a year and a half ago. <laughs> you did? We did. I'm waiting for him to get the script finished and get the money, and we're going to go. Oh, shit. I, they're probably around here someplace. Um, I'll tell you how we got that job, which is very interesting. I was working on a movie called Eraser mm-hmm. with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah. And the director was a guy named Chuck Russell. Chuck Russell had written The Blob. Chuck Russell directed a bunch of stuff. And there's a crazy scene where James Caan chases uh, Arnold into this alligator habitat. And in order to survive, Arnold shoots the glass out, and the water pours out, and the alligators kill all the bad guys. So Dennis, Dennis Parrish, who's the prop master... We work with Dennis a lot. His daughter, Hope, is a huge prop master as well. Um, so we ended up building animatronic eight foot and 12 foot alligators. alligators. And there was one particular, and these things were all, you know, pneumatic pistons and like you could really like take somebody's arm off if you wanted to. They were that powerful. It was like basically the Jurassic Park T Rex times. Three or four, because we made four of them. Wow. So we built self-contained ones, which I am super proud of this movie. Nobody, the scene's over so fast. We had to put alligators in the tank that you could flip a switch, and they would start to swim around the tank, so when they blew the windows, the alligators would come out. Yeah. So we built self-contained alligators, and then once they were out we had these, and they probably weighed 1,200 pounds each, these big, giant, mechanical alligators. That's your jaws, man. So we uh, so we built, the head moved, and then we built the front legs to move a little bit, yeah. just because we thought, ah, it would be good to have a little bit of movement. So the when, when the water drained out of the tank, the set was built at Universal, um, there was about, I don't know, six or eight inches of water on the ground. And... Chuck Russell came over and said, okay, so listen, I need the alligator to go from there to there. It's about eight feet. And, like, my team was standing behind me, like, (laughs) shaking their heads, going, they don't do that. And they... And I went, all right, give me a minute. Let me think about it. So we kind of huddled in and was like, wait a minute. What if we put it on, like, a little creeper dolly, and then we just put a cable underneath the mechanism, and we just pulled it. Yeah. And we puppeteer the front legs said if we did something like that it might just give us enough for the director for the cut just to have the alligator move into frame and and chomp yeah and that happened a couple times you know that happened a few times where the director would come in and ask us to do something and knowing that like it wasn't built to do that but I wasn't willing to say no. I was willing to say, let me think about it. Yeah. So, cut to six months later, um, new line calls because Mark DePay and Steve Williams and Clint Goldman, who were the ILM guys that were on Eraser, were getting ready to do Spawn. Clinton was going to produce, Steve was going to produce, and Mark DePay was going to direct. And Denise Reem Denise Reem was the female producer, a uh, VFX producer. Anyway, they called us and they said, "Hey, we're getting ready to do Spawn, and you know, we would love you guys to come in and build this big giant Violator puppet, yes. massive hydraulic Violator uh, creature." And we had our first meeting, and I said, "Guys, this is awesome, man! You know, I'm like a huge fan, and I love Todd McFarland and Spawn." And I said, "What made you think of us?" And they said, "Well, when we huh. did Eraser." You never said no. Uh, you never said no to the director. Even if, even if no matter what the idea was, was so outrageous that you would never be able to do it, you never said no. You said, give me a minute. Let me think about it. And they said that's what made them want to hire us. They said the fact that you had no interest in in shutting like, the director down. No negativity. Yeah, you just wanted to try to figure out a way to do it. And by figuring out a way to do it, um, that we really we really responded to that kind of work ethic, and that's why we wanted to work with you guys. And I like, in my career, that was probably one of the greatest mm. compliments that I've ever gotten. You know, um, and I love that story because to me, that's that sort of really says a lot about who I am and who my company is.
0: Um. That's, I love that because it's uh, that's how I work too when I have to create something I always just say yes yes and and the the gold you know the the, the creamer rise to the top and you know whatever doesn't mm-hmm. make it ends up on the cutting room floor anyway you know, <laughs> um, uh, unbreakable minority report Hulk kill Bill one and two Ray mm-hmm. Casino Royale Transformers grindhouse the book of Eli's suicide squad okay. Hateful Eight. I mean, these are these, and now Creepshow. Um,
1: you have Sin City, <laughs> like Sin City it, was was, uh, was great. Sin City. You know, it's interesting about that movie. You know, Fra- Frank Miller, Robert Rodriguez. You know, I like I said, I had I'd had done. I started Mickey, who I think is amazing. Um I'd started working with Robert on From Dust Till Dawn in ninety-five. And it was very interesting for me to watch him grow and develop as a filmmaker. Because Robert's like I, I feel like Robert was very much like the horror directors of the late sixties and seventies, mm. like Toby Hooper and Wes Craven and 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 George Romero, because those guys had this sort of rebel spirit, you know, when they told me, oh, you can't show that, or you can't text the Chainsaw Massacre, who the hell would ever make that movie? Oh, I'm going to make that movie, you know, like... Hanging in the Smithsonian, or hanging in the yeah, Roma. yeah, yeah. So I feel like Robert had that same, and still does, of course, that same rebellious spirit. So a lot of people don't realize that Sin City was... Was one of the first movies that was shot all on green screen. Yeah, all on green screen, and to to see his expertise in visual effects from *Dust Till Dawn*, which was '95, to *Sin City*, which was 2004. I remember Robert saying to me, "Ah, fuck, man! You know, like VFX stuff slows you down because you got to go over to another stage and it's green, and and then you have to shoot the background plate and the element." He didn't love the VFX part of it. He loved the makeup effects part of it, our mm-hmm. part, but he didn't love the VFX part about it. So what did he do? He literally reinvented how to do it um, so that it, it could fit into the style of his filmmaking because Robert... And the know, style of the comic book. I mean, it looks it's seamless. Yes, yes. And uh, dude, we would shoot scenes where... Mickey Rourke was there one day and then like two weeks later, Jessica Alba would be there and then three days later, Bruce Willis would be there and none of them were in the same scene together for half of it, but it looks like they're looking at each other. Like I remember shooting a scene with Mickey where he was sitting down and then we shot a scene on full green screen, green screen stage Um, and then... Like a couple weeks later, we shot Jessica Alba sitting across from him, and then they would pre-visit and put it together. I was so proud of that movie and in terms of the work that we did, I remember the first time we did a we did a couple design busts of Mickey Rourke here in um in l a and Robert and Frank came over, and the makeups were not quite as exaggerated as Frank had initially wanted. He said, oh, well, this is the way Marv is, and he did a quick right. sketch. semicircle, and then you cut in, you cut in for the brow, you cut out for the nose, you cut back in, and then the chin comes out. So I watched him draw Marv, and he just did it like this. And then I looked at it, and went, I got it. So uh, we went to George, uh, Georgia, Georgia, <laughs> went to Georgia, we went to Austin. Yeah. We did the first makeup test. And Mickey put on the wife beater and the cross and, the, and the, the leather duster and he walked on set and Frank Miller backed away from it. It was the first time that Frank Miller had ever seen that character come to life. Wow! It had always been a drawing on a comic book page. Wow. And I'll never forget standing there and watching Mick approach him and see Frank visibly recoil. Because in Frank's head, he knew who Marv was and what Marv was capable yeah, of doing. Yeah. He had never seen Marv in front of him before. Monster. Yeah. It was, it was really, you know. And Big compliment, man. It was, well, I mean, listen, I mean, the thing I always say about what we do is we, and I think I've, I've been able to translate that as a director as well. Because when you're a makeup artist, You're the first person the actress sees in the morning. You go in the makeup trailer, they sit down, and then you transform them. Whether you're turning them into Marv, whether you're turning them into Adolf Hitler and inglorious bastards, whatever character you're turning them into, your job is to, you transform them, and then they go on set and they become that person. And then afterwards, they come to the trailer, and you clean them up, and then they go home. So, like, with Mickey, like, nobody ever saw him out of makeup. They only saw him as Marv. And I felt like after that experience, and then when we started doing Walking Dead, our trailer was right across from the straight makeup trailer. And I remember, like, John Bernthal and Sarah Callies, they'd come walking out of their trailer at the same time that zombies would come, in walk, come walking out of our trailer. Yeah, And Sarah told me she had nightmares uh, because of what we were creating for the show and so when my opportunity came up in season two to direct the actors already trusted me because right. they saw how dedicated I was to the show they saw my level of commitment my level of of contribution so when it came time and I think Seth Gilliams said to me one of the first episodes that, that I had directed with him when we were done he came over and he went you know I didn't know how I was going to feel about you as a director because I know you were a makeup guy, and I said, "Okay." He said, "Dude, you're you were great. It was a blast. It was fun. Like, you get it." And I and I said, "Well, Seth, you know, I spent twenty years of my career cultivating relationships with actors to the point where they can trust me enough to transform them into these characters. So, as a director, I feel like the." first thing out of the gate I have with my actors is trust if the actors don't trust you you're you're dead in the water so I feel like my background as a makeup artist really helped transition into my relationship with all of my all of my actors you included um because there's times when I'm going to ask you guys to do stuff that feels weird and sometimes they'll be like I, you know, it doesn't feel right, but yeah, I'll try it. They, they say, I'll try it. They're, not try, they're trying it because of my relationship with them. Yeah. And I feel very uh, fortunate. And that was one of the things that I talked to Quentin about when he had said, what was it like directing? And I sort of relayed that, that experience to him. Uh, and uh, it, it was interesting. So with, with Sin City, Sin City was one of those projects where, my relationship with Mickey and Nick Stahl and Benicio del Toro, all those guys, like they saw what we did. I always told, I always told Benicio that I when we, we gave him nose appliance yeah, and a yeah. chin appliance. Yeah, uh, and I kept saying, dude, you look like Jimmy Page now. Like I said, you look like a fucking rock star because we gave him a long, longer nose and we gave him a chin, and uh, right. you know it was super fun. It was. That that project really Gino Crownali and I was another guy named Chris Nelson that worked on it, Garrett worked on it. Um we had it it was really fun. I think after the fifth month of shooting on all green screen stages, like your eyes, you walk out. Right. Like everything was red because yeah. of the <laughs> color. I was like, What's happening here? So on the comment I, I
0: I love that movie. Yeah, me too. Um Creepshow season 2? Yeah. That's amazing. Congrats. Um, thank you for doing this, man. I man, mean, thanks for having I, me. I'm so happy that I got to know you and I got to work with you and now you know me even better. Uh, well, yeah, but like just to see all of the there's so many moments that you were involved in in my movie watching history that are viscerally ingrained in my like just memory forever. Yeah. Uh so thank you for well, that. Thank you. Um, and, uh, oh, would you, would you consider helping me? I'm, I'm, I'm directing a movie soon. Sure. Uh, called uh, You haven't heard what it is It yeah. doesn't matter. Awesome. I think it. you dig it. It's like a, it's like a dystopian, post-apocalyptic, a lot of real MMA guys involved. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Okay. Brooklyn Gladiator. You're the man. Thank you, Thank you for having me on yeah, here. Yeah, man. You going to show okay. me around a little bit? I'm going show got time? you around. Yeah. Love it. Okay.